This is Sophia. And I'm Victoria. You're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 8 a.m. on Thursdays. Each week, we will interview a history professional with the theme of bridging the past and present. Let's get started. I am in a conventional dither with a conventional star in my eye. And you will know there's a lump in my throat. Good morning and welcome back to It's All History to Me. This morning we are joined by Dr. Matthew Clary, a senior lecturer in the political science department at Auburn University. Before coming to Auburn, Dr. Clary earned his PhD at the University of Georgia and worked as the grants coordinator for the School of Public and International Affairs in the Grady College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. Dr. Clary's research focuses on international security and foreign policy, focusing on national reputations and democratiza- democratization process? Democratization. Democratization. That's a mouthful. There yeah. we go. Yes. <laughs> Dr. Clary also teaches classes in international relations, corp- comparative politics, and international security. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. No problem. Happy to be here. All right. So to get our conversation started, what got you interested in political science? Um, so I always tell students that, you know, I honestly, I wasn't very political or super interested in current events or anything like that, even a couple years into high school. And then, of course, my senior year in high school, uh, 2001, oh, yeah. September 11th. So, you know, I always say that there are always going to be those kind of critical global events that will mm. push people in certain directions. And so for me, um, it was that year, it was sort of this critical consensus of events. It was September 11th and kind of the night and day uh, changes that that brought to everything. And uh, I was also taking uh, an elective course on international affairs. I was taking AP U.S. government and politics, Mm -hmm. AP comparative politics. Um, It was just sort of like, and then I was doing policy debate. And with policy debate, our topic was it a foreign policy topic. It was sort of like a critical consensus of all of my life coming together. And I was like, you know what? I really like this. And so when I went to undergrad the next year, from day one, I knew I wanted to study political science. And, And when we say political science, you know, most of us will focus on a subfield. And so from day one, my subfield was international affairs. Yeah. I took one American government politics, and it was just because <laughs> I was required to take it. Right. Um, so, you know, things like politics of China, politics of Russia. Um, and I haven't looked back since. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a great story. What was your work like when you served as grants coordinator to, for the School of Public and International Affairs in the Grady College of Journalism at the University of Georgia? Yeah, so um, I've worn a few different hats. So um, after I finished my doctorate at at UGN 2014, I'd also gotten married to my wife. We've been married for 10 years um, as of last last month. And um, she was still finishing her PhD at UGA. And so kind of in, in, just to be completely honest, the academic job market was a beast coming out Mm -hmm. of the the recession and it still hadn't, frankly, has never rebounded. Uh, and so I was on the job market looking for, you know, tenure track jobs, you know, jobs like, like at Auburn. And in the meantime, I had to find something that, that paid the bills. Uh, and so at UGM, the, the dean there, she reached out to me and she's like, hey, I know I have this, this uh, venture. You know, I didn't know the first thing about grants when I started. <laughs> um, but I also, you know, I know how to, I know how to write critically, persuasively, you know, so that I mm-hmm. always tell students, it's a little cliche at this point, but um, it, it, as long as you have these like core skills, right. like critical thinking, um, you can write uh, persuasively and in a structured way, like in a memo or, or some sort of report format. Uh, those are transferable to any any anything any, any number of things. And so, I ended up 
working part time at least at the start working on grants and then that great eventually got to like a full time position and we started I started working on multi million dollar grants wow. with with faculty um, and you know mostly at the the Grady College but I was also for the School of Public International Affairs there as well where I had come from. And, uh, you know, there was one in particular that I remember it was a $50 million grant. We didn't end up getting it, but just trying to, it was like project management, you yeah. know, basic, again, basic skills, but trying to balance a budget of $50 million. And what the project was, it would have, it was in the midst of the, the early days of the Syrian Civil War. Mm. And it was for uh, it, uh, basically a federal grant that would fund a creating a, a media um, provider in eastern Turkey mm. to cover the, the news in Syria because there was wow. an absence of news coverage. And um, and so the, the $50 million, we had to figure out how to distribute it. We think about things like security, because, I mean, eastern Turkey at that time was not a safe place. And right. um, we did, like I said, we did end up getting it, um, but still had to navigate the proposal. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I did that in a lot of other projects for about two years. And um, I was right at the cusp of kind of committing to that as my career. I was good at it. Um, and academia had kind of, it was starting to fade away. Once you're on the mm -hmm. job market and you're, you're not getting a position after a couple of years, you're not shining noon, so people move on. Right. And then lo and behold, the same week that I'm making that decision between moving up to a, a higher grants position at UGA, um, and basically the second I say yes to that, I'm, I'm committed and, mm -hmm. and academia is done. I'm not right. going to be able to, to come back. Like, that's just the way that that works. I get a call from Dr. Brown here at Auburn. Oh. It was a, initially it was a visiting position. And, you know, so I had to weigh that. I was like, do I take a for sure thing that I'm good at, that I know can pay the bills and, and you know, gives me stability to come to Auburn to, to, to pursue teaching? Right. Like, do I, how much do I really value teaching? Yeah. And I, you know, we, my wife and I, we both took the risk. We came here and... Uh, eight years later, I'm still here, and now I'm, I'm a senior lecturer. So I mean, I'm 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 non-tenure track, so I, I don't have tenure. I can't get tenure, um, and we we can talk about that if you want. But that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, you know, I I'm I found what I, I I love. I asked myself the question: What do I get up in the morning? Am I excited to write grants? And the answer was no. Oh yeah. Am I excited when I wake up to go teach class? And the answer is yes. And so you know that that made it a lot easier yeah. when I, when you could frame it like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Kind of on the topic of transferable skills, like you were starting with uh, for how you got into that position for as you were working to carry over from your grants position to teaching, did you have any transferable skills from that side of the coin? Um, I think it's, it, it helped to, uh, cause I mean, often what, what a lot of academic journeys look like is you, you get your, your PhD and you go right into, you know, you get into your tenure track position and you're, you're in, immediately you're on the clock to get tenure. And so you have to research, research, mm -hmm. research. We, we actually call it publish or perish. Oh yeah. And so in academia, you, you either getting articles out in a frantic pace and, it's not to say that there aren't plenty of faculty that, that navigate the, the balancing research, teaching, and service kind of all at the same time. But if something's going to have to give, it's going to be your teaching. Mm. Um, and so it's not to say that people aren't inherently good teachers, but, you know, you don't, they don't get trained to be teachers. Right. Like we, we, that's really a problem. We don't really train very well, at least, our, our faculty uh, as graduate students to be teachers. Mm. They don't give those skills. Um, so you kind of develop it on the fly. Yeah. Uh, and then in addition, there is often not a lot of practical real-world experience. Um, so, like, most of us are giving, like, career advice or right. thing like And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm often have to say, like, well, I've not actually been on the job market in that mm -hmm. way. Or, 
you know, so the, I think the being the grants coordinator, like at least it was still in academia. It was still in higher ed, I mm-hmm. suppose. So, you know, I never really have left higher ed. I've, I feel like I'm in grade, you know, 30 at this point. Like, <laughs> I feel like I've been in, in school my entire life, yeah. it, which there is a lot of truth to that. I have one year where I worked in D.C. in a think tank mm. um, and learned that I, that wasn't for me, but <laughs> um, for, for a variety of reasons. But uh, the, the grant job the transferable things were, you know, actually working a, a typical like eight to five job, um, learning how to navigate supervisors and, and people that don't communicate well, how to, you know, big personalities, big projects. Right. And so um, I think in terms of how I structure my classes, how I treat my students is I try to treat them like real people where, yeah. you know, I recognize like, hey, you, I can have these, all these strict policies I want, but of course I've got to be flexible. Y'all are humans. You have demands upon your time. And you know, things happen, you'll get a flat tire. And like, I could be like, well, that's tough. That's your problem. Not mine. You, your lack of planning is not my problem. Like, right. th- I don't, I'm not that person. <laughs> and I think that it, it, the flexibility that that job demanded and, and just understanding the, the demands of the, like a real job, what that's going to entail. It's not, it's not this strict, you know, the, sometimes the way we teach these class, these classes, it's not mm-hmm. that way. That's yeah. not how the robot's going to be. Right, right. Yeah. One of your research interests in, is in the democratization process and other nations and how that affects rep, national reputations. What drew you to this interest? So in the early days in graduate school, that's where I really focused on democratization. I, 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 I still am very interested in that, but my, my research definitely, you end up having to kind of choose a path and, and I moved away from that. Um, it doesn't mean that I don't still appreciate it. Um, but what I was really interested in is how do countries transition to democracy so what does that process look like so if um you know a, a, a country or region so say the arab spring in 2011 mm-hmm. what 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 expectation do we have for any of those countries whether they're egypt or, or syria or bahrain or morocco any of these countries that saw massive protests what would the process look like if they tried to transition to democracy mm-hmm. um and you know it, 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 is there a, a, a defined process is there sort of a formula? And the answer is no. Mm-hmm. There's no magic formula. Um, and what, you know, I, I think the the most innovative thing I did with that was this, this with a professor in graduate school, was, the, was this idea that, um, and it's not convenient, nobody likes this idea, but it, that sometimes it's about timing. And some of these countries just aren't, you know, and I'm not trying to come down as like this, the Western, you know, uh, colonial power telling you what, what you should and shouldn't be doing as a country. Um, so I want to start with that, <laughs> but that some countries just aren't ready for that transition right. and that we should be care- very careful not to force it, not to induce it. Hmm. Um, and that's, uh, again, not a popular opinion, but sometimes authoritarianism, it has its it, repression and all the bad things that come with it. But sometimes that has to come first hmm. before you can have a successful opportunity to democratization. Yeah. I think you have to know what you're missing. Um, and so that, that's where that research really went and kind of concluded. And then um, kind of on the second side of that was what when I picked my dissertation topic, which I, I really looked at how, so it, I guess it's a similar idea, but how if countries want to change others' perceptions of them, um, you know, if say, for example, North Korea tomorrow, Kim Jong-un woke up and said, you know what, I'm kind of tired of being a tyrant. I'm tired of, of having the world think I'm, I'm just this, this jerk that wants to watch the world burn. Um, not likely to happen, but just a, as an example, uh, how would the world know if he meant it or not? 
And like, mm-hmm. that's a really important question that yeah. I, that, uh, you know, I can tell you the research, we don't have a, too many definitive answers to. Um, and so, you know, I, I, this is my dissertation research that, that became my, my book that I, I published uh, back in COVID times, 2020, <laughs> I think 2020. Um, it's available in the library if you want to read it. Uh, you can be one of the five people, I think, in all, all of history that have read it, um, <laughs> other than my mom, um, who did not understand it. But, <laughs> um, to, but, but definitely please go look at it. Uh, and, um, the, you know, basically trying to identify a process by which, um, you know, thinking about it, you know, often when I try to think about international relations and, and politics, I try to think about how to individual people, like if I, you know, committed some bad act and, and got a bad reputation, what would I do? What would mm-hmm. I need to do to prove to others that I'm, my, my disposition, was, that was not me? Right. That, and, you know, it, we can extend that's, you know, research from social psychology. We extend that to political science. And so, you know, that's really what my research does is kind of bridging that gap between, you know, how we, we can hopefully influence what others think. Because ultimately reputations in the eye of the beholder. Right. Uh, and, and the question becomes how much control do we actually have in that process? Mm-hmm. And the, the more, the further along I've gotten, the more I realize we probably don't have that much control at all. Right. Um, that we think we do, and we have a lot of tools that are supposed to be called public diplomacy, and um, we can kind of shape low-level perceptions, but if you've really committed some kind of bad behavior, like pursuing nuclear weapons or sponsoring terrorism, and, you, you know, big faux pas, like not faux pas, but big, big violations of rules and laws and norms of the system, to come back from that, uh, it pretty much requires regime change. Wow. And I for the longest time I've resisted saying that because I was like, surely that can't be the, the conclusion because if that's the conclusion, then the implication is that North, a country like North Korea can never, mm-hmm. with, with Kim Jong-un at the helm, could never in a million years come clean. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I didn't want to believe that, but that's also not how research is supposed to work. It's not supposed to be normative. It's supposed right. to be what does the evidence tell me. Right. And the evidence has told me even when countries are somewhat successful, so a, a positive example um, was Muammar Gaddafi uh, between 2000 and, and like five, 2004, post-Iraq war, and then 2011 when he was deposed, there's a very brief window where he um, basically completely changes track. He goes from being this monster during mm-hmm. the Cold War. I mean, people just, the way we think of Kim Jong-un, we thought worse of, of Muammar Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. Um, and overnight, he voluntarily cedes all chemical weapons in his, in his arsenal, um, releases political prisoners, um, makes amends for their, they had sponsored terrorism, you know, directly carried out terrorist attacks. Like, so the, if you've heard of the Lockerbie bombing mm-hmm. in Scotland, mm-hmm. they, uh, Libyan agents planted a, a suitcase bomb on the plane and blew it up and killed everyone on board. Um, and Libya would never take responsibility. And then finally kind of almost, it, it seemingly overnight, I mean, it took a while for this to be negotiated, like two or three year period, but they changed their tune. Wow. And so the United States, the United Kingdom kind of welcomed Muammar Gaddafi back into the fold ever so, you know, slowly. Mm. But of course, um, the the reason why I, I've kind of moving closer to the conclusion that maybe this isn't tenable is that the changes that he pursued were exactly the changes that ended up bringing his downfall. By oh. 2011, when the Arab Spring happens and the, the Libyan civil war begins, that's all those people he had released as political prisoners, mm-hmm. and they came back to, to finish the job. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, even if he can fix his reputation globally, you know, the changes that he's undertaken domestically are, are going to end up biting him, and that's exactly what happened. And so I think that the lesson for governments in, like, Myanmar, where, you know, where the military government gave up control for a, a short, like, five, seven-year period, 
and then came back and realized, you know, we have to take back control because this isn't working. I think the implication is we can't give up control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you see with that so many different intersections of like you were talking about before we got on air, the psychology and like mentality of just humans and how that connects to what political science brings. So very intersectional in a neat way. Okay. So for our last question before the ad break, how does your work tie into our theme this semester of bridging the past and the present? So, you know, I, I, so much of what political science is, and, and, and I believe deeply in this, my research and my teaching always speak to this, is, um, you know, as political scientists, I always, always kind of half joke, but I mean it, that we are, we're historians, we're the historians of tomorrow. And so, um, you know, to me, the, the difference between a historian and a political scientist really is just a matter of, of time and perspective. Mm. That historians are, are you know, they're, they're interested in something that's been done. It's, it's over, done with, and we can uncover patterns and explanations because the information is there to be had, or at least what we're, we're likely to know is there, or it's uncoverable. Political science is a little bit more frustrating because it's still developing. You know, right. the things that I'm talking about in my Russian foreign policy class right now, um, you know, the global reaction to Novani's death, you know, that's still developing. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I can come up with predictions. I try not to because we're, you know, political science, we're not great at predictions. And, <laughs> and we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be in that business. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a little bit more nebulous. Right. But it's also important because it's the world we're living in now and people really want to know what does this mean for me today yeah um and so i think that bridging those gaps um that one i think that they're 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 complementary for sure um you know i don't teach a class where i don't spend time talking about the historical context of of kind of how did we get to where we're at so mm-hmm. you know if you want to understand putin um and his perspective on ukraine you can't possibly start that conversation without understanding one, you know, going back to 2000, 1999, when he wins his first, you know, presidential election and comes to power, where did he come from? What, mm-hmm. What's his background? And so you have to study some history, you have to know Russian history. And then even more so, if you want to understand what he's talking about, uh, you know, if, if you look at the the interview he did with Tucker Carlson mm-hmm. um, about a you know week and a half ago that, that got a lot of people's attention, um, you know, he's talking about things like Kiwi and Rus and uh, you know, the when Russia once controlled all of Central and, and, and Eastern Europe and, and you know, not just the Soviet era, but the Russian Empire era. And, you know, if you don't understand history, you don't know what the heck he's talking about. It's right. like you're speaking to not just Russian, but you're also speaking another language. <laughs> and, you know, I think to understand, what, you know, Putin's living in the past and, and that's that matters when we're trying to assess his behavior and anticipate his next moves. Because, frankly put, he's not living on Earth One. He's mm-hmm. living on uh, alternate Earth where history, his perception of history and the experience of Russia is just very different. And so, you know, with that comes his grievances, his um, things that he wants to get even for. And if you don't understand history, you can't possibly uncover that. And so realistically, I think that the the complementary element of that really speaks to how I conduct my research and how I conduct my teaching. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take an ad break, but we'll see you in two minutes. back to It's All History to Me. This morning we are joined by Dr. Matthew Clary from the Auburn University Political Science Department. For this next segment, we'll be discussing the war between Russia and Ukraine. 
For our listeners who might not be aware, how did the war start between Russia and Ukraine? Wow, um, that's a big <laughs> question. Uh, so as we were just talking during the break, you know, we're coming up on the, the two-year anniversary of the initial invasion. Um, so when Russian military forces actually, you know, they had already crossed into Ukraine. So really this conflict, you know, we think of it as starting two years ago in earnest, but truth, truthfully, it starts back in 2014 mm. when Russia it takes over Crimea, basically without a fight in the international community doesn't do nearly enough to to punish Russia and make it clear like that's unacceptable. Mm. And so the lesson that that Putin uh, learns from that, you know, he had eight years to kind of get his ducks in a row for the, the bigger invasion. But the lesson he learned is, look, there's no consequence to, to taking another country's territory that mm -hmm. I think is, is historically mine. Wow. Um, and that, that's a pretty powerful norm that we have in our relations and that we didn't do enough to deter. So realistically, this does start back in 2014. Um, and then the, the real invasion where Russian troops are attempting to, to take the, the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv and it was sort of when everyone starts paying attention to this, um, that was two years ago. Um, and the motivation behind it, you know, really, I mean, it all comes down to Putin. It's mm. Putin's perspective on the, his worldview, his, his grip on power in that system. There just isn't anyone to tell him no. Wow. Um, and there, you know, the... The historical revisionists that that want to return Russia to its historical position of prestige. If you look back in history, um, Russian foreign policy is dominated by this this motivation for we we're only safe and secure through conquest. Um, that is the story of the Russian state um, from its founding in, in 800, give or take AD, when it was a, a small. Actually, it actually occupied um, parts of current Ukraine. The, the city of Kiev uh, was the kind of heart and soul of the Russian empire, ironically. Mm. Um, and so from Putin's perspective, Ukraine isn't an independent country. Now that's a, you know, certainly not accurate. It's an independent country. It, it's recognized as a sovereign entity by the international community. Like mm -hmm. all, it follows all the, the expectations of what a sovereign state is. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're again, living on you know, Earth 2.0 in his perspective, but right. he also has tools at his disposal to do something about that. And so from his perspective, he is righting historical wrongs um, by taking control of Ukraine. Um, and, and from his perspective, one, it partially has to do with that, you know, he feels Russia is, is under threat. Um, the international system that, that of laws and rules and institutions has not been kind to Russia mm -hmm. um, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and that, it, you know, any time that they've attempted working or trusting the West, they've gotten burned. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he's not wrong. And then, of course, you know, the promises of NATO not expanding eastward to the Russian border, and then eventually that, that, that happens. And so the, there's a story to be told about promises that the West will make to, to Russia and Putin and that we don't live up to them. And so he, he's learned that he can't trust the West, and you know, maybe this was always going to go this way because he, he's a, a bit of a megalomaniac too. Um, so I don't want to downplay that aspect of it and say that it was completely somebody else's fault. He needs to own the fact that this is his decision. The upwards of 300,000 soldiers dead, Russian soldiers dead um, to this point, those are on his hands. Right. But to him, they're, they're fodder. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're just part of a tool to be used to, to return Russia to its area of prestige. Mm -hmm. And for him, Ukraine is maybe the beginning. 
So a lot of NATO countries are are very concerned that this is just step one of a much broader plan wow. where, you know, certainly maybe returning back to the Soviet era where countries like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania that are now NATO countries, part of the EU, haven't been in Russia's sphere for 30 plus years now. Right. They were once Soviet republics. And wow. so Putin has said out loud multiple times that he would like to make change that. Wow. Um, and so that's their concern. And then in addition, even if he does stop after Ukraine, um, if Ukraine were to turn in their favor when it's absolutely not necessarily going great for Russia, um, is that Ukraine would be a buffer zone between NATO, Western Europe, and, and Russia. And so, you know, Ukraine would represent that, um, you know, a bit of safety um, for Russia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Powerful, powerful and looming scary stuff. Okay, so like you mentioned at the top of this segment, the war is nearing its two-year anniversary, which will officially occur on the weekend of February 24th for the formally recognized conflict. Uh, Could you outline your initial response to the war and then how you feel the situation has evolved in the past almost two years? So, I I mean, I I think it's important to acknowledge when... Uh, even when us experts, um, we, we think we know a lot that when we're wrong. And so I'll admit, um, and, and I, I wish more people would do this, but when the war started, I wasn't surprised when it happened. I mm-hmm. will say, like, I, I wasn't predicting it per se, but I also wasn't surprised. Like, this, right. the, the pieces were there from 2014 onward, as I said. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Putin, Putin and the, the Russian government were giving every signal that this was coming. And Ukraine knew it too. So Ukraine had been preparing. This is why the the war has been so so uh, much at a standstill. Mm. Ukraine had eight years after 2014 in, in Crimea. People don't really think about that as much, but they had eight years to get ready. Oh, that's a good point. Um, and so those eight years they used wisely. Um, they they procured weapons and and um, developed strategies for how to counter a, a, a Russian incursion into their country, and mm. it's worked quite effectively to this point. Um, and so where, where, I, where I will admit that I was wrong was I expected when Russia invaded Ukraine, within two or three days, it'd be over. Hmm. And I, you know, I think I thought the same way Putin did. And I think the U.S. government generally thought this too. Most, yeah. most observers would have thought this. And the reason why is on paper, Russia is, I mean, it, I, I don't know the exact ratio, but it's probably 50 to 1, 100 to 1 more powerful than Ukraine. Um, it's not even close. And... I, I should have known better because one of the theories, or one one explanation of, of conflict or the way conflicts play out the way that they are, there's sort of two explanations. One is um, Ukraine had time to prepare technology. Um, def- there's a defensive uh, advantage of fighting for their homes. And then it's an asymmetrical conflict. You know, one side is more powerful than the other, but the, the weaker side can use their knowledge of the terrain, their knowledge, the fight, fact that they're fighting for their homes. Um, the fact that, you know, if they lose their families die. If right. Russian soldiers lose or, you know, lose ground, they're, they're losing something that wasn't theirs to begin with. Mm. And in a lot of cases, a lot of them are on the front lines and not wanting to fight in the first place. So right. the motivations are different. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the, the West support of Ukraine so far, um, you know, and, and some of that's continuing with, with, you know, like, for example, Denmark, I think last week announced that it's literally giving Ukraine every piece of artillery they have in their, their, their um, armament. Wow. Um, which, you know, it's not a lot, but countries don't do that. The countries do not give up what they have for their own defense to give to another country, even if that country is a good friend or an ally. And in this case, it's, it's a, maybe a decent friend and not an ally. Um, but that's how important this is to the European, European countries. Yeah. Um, 
and you know Sweden announced a huge aid package, UK announced a huge aid package. So other countries are, you know, contributing to this. And the US had to had been to this point, of course, domestic politics rear their ugly head. <laughs> um, and you know we can chat about that, of course, but that's a slightly different a related topic, a slightly different topic. Um, and you know, so that I, I, I'm happy to admit that I was wrong because I, I underestimated Ukraine, overestimated Russia, mm. and I think a lot of other people did too. So yeah. I'm not not alone in that. But um, I'm surprised after the first couple of months, you know, that this developed into the type of conflict that it is, mm-hmm. and that Ukraine has held its own for so long, and that there's still a chance that, you know, Ukraine. I don't know if they can win outright. But they absolutely can keep most of their their sovereignty, their territory intact in, in if they have the support to do so. And, um, you know, I, I think the, the bigger implication is sending the message to to Putin and Russia, as well as others watching, you know, Xi Jinping in China, mm. um, you know, other countries basically saying, you know, if you try to take territory from another country in today's world, that's not okay. Right. That's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's definitely against the law, but international law, but international law is nebulous and <laughs> um, difficult to enforce, but that this is a norm that we deeply care about and that there has to be consequences and right. that this war, you know, yes, it's been very consequential for Russia, 300,000 soldiers dead, huge damage to the Russian economy, but the, the impact, the, the problem is we have to do something to make it costly for Putin. Right. Um, and so far, he's he's very well insulated. He he's mm. um, he's a multi-billionaire. He he lives in a like he's living on Earth 2.0. Yeah. He doesn't live in the real world. And so, to him, you know, if Russia another million Russians die in the pursuit of this, as long as they win in the end, it's all worth it. Mm. And that's not good for Russia or the right. average Russian. But he doesn't really care about that. Right. Right. Yeah. As it stands right now. What do you? Th- how do you think history will remember the war in Ukraine? Um, is it the mark of a new global political era? Yeah. So, uh, one, I, I will say it's hard to history. We, you know, we're always careful to say let's not rush to judgment and, and establish historical um, precedents or um, or theories onto like what, why, what, why this happened or what this means because it's still happening. Um, you know, it's like the same way we, we were supposed to wait to rank presidents and, and um, decide, like, where do they fit in the, the realm of history? Because history, some of the events that they're, they're involved in have to play out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it, we're impatient. So, of course, we're ranking Trump and Biden. And, you know, on President's Day, a lot of new, new uh, rankings came out. But realistically, good historians want, want to wait. They right. want historical clarity. Um, so everything I say after this, you know, just know that, like, I'm starting with that that <laughs> argument that, of course, history will be a, a judge in a much longer term. Mm-hmm. So, like, the question really is, are we on the cusp of, of this kind of global transition to a much more um, geopolitically unstable time? Um, I can't say definitively, but it sure feels like it. You know, yeah. I, I, I don't – I try not to make too many historical analogies because I, I, there's actually – research on this that that shows that when we make historical analogies and say this situation's just like this other time in history and it's going to follow exactly the same it rarely does history does not repeat itself exactly now there are patterns there are there i'm not saying there's not things to learn from history there absolutely is right um and the the example we the one of the analogies we are quick to rush to is it's called the, the munich appeasement so hitler um mm-hmm. And it go back to the 1930s when Europe and the and the West are trying to decide how do we handle this aggressor, you know this we've not 
we haven't seen something like this before, or we haven't seen something like this before in a very long time, uh, maybe since Napoleon. And, you know, the question was, is can he, if he, we give him what he says he needs and he'll leave, leave and, and be happy, will, you know, will he be satisfied? So can we appease him? Right. And the, the initial choice was, yeah, let's try. At the Munich conference, um, the, they, you know, Neville Chamberlain's infamous for this, but also um, John F. Kennedy's father was one of the American diplomats there. So I mean, there were other folks, not just Neville Chamberlain. <laughs> um, and they're accused, and history judges them for this pretty harshly, that they tried to appease an aggressor. And the lesson was uh, they misread the situation, that Hitler was never going to be appeased that you cannot appease an aggressor, a true aggressor that desires power for power's sake. And mm. once that territory, whether it belongs to them, whether it was for German-speaking people or Liebenstrom or whatever the justification is, those were all like misnomers. They were, they were misleading. Um, and so they misread the situation. And so the reason why I bring that up is the question is, are we, are we seeing something similar with, with somebody like Putin? Right. Is Putin going to be satisfied with Ukraine? If, if, for example, we forced Ukraine... I mean, we really can't force Ukraine to do anything, but if we, um, if Ukraine was induced to the negotiating table and basically told, like, look, in order to get out of this, we want this to end, it's costly, it's, there's, there's no obvious, you know, victory is, is in the distant future, and we don't know what that looks like, and it's going to be very costly in the, in the long term, financially, um, loss of life, things of that nature, um, you know, Ukraine could be induced to the, the negotiating table and basically forced to give up to Crimea, the Donbas, maybe even some of the other territory that Russia's gained since then. Um, you know, and whether Ukraine would like, Ukraine's not going to like that, but, you know, they, we could put pressure, Europe could put pressure on them, basically, and we're not going to support you anymore. I, I'm not saying that's my position, but that's, that is one way this plays out. And the question is, if we did that, and, and we did it under the, the promise that, you know, Putin's telling us, at least out loud, if you do that, I'll end the war hmm. and I'll, I'll be satisfied. I'll stop. What if we're wrong? Right. What, if, what if the second we do that, the next step, he collects the, you know, all of his military power that he's now exerted. Um, you know, they're on a war footing. They, mm -hmm. the next, then within six months, they launch an invasion of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, the Baltic republics. And that's NATO and Russia at war. Right. And the United States at the moment is obligated per the NATO treaty that we signed in 1949 to go to war against Russia right. if that happens. Um, that's World War Three, mm -hmm. so we have to assess the situation. It's it's Munich 2.0, yeah. but it's not exactly the same. Hitler is not Putin. Um, there are similarities, but I'm very careful to note. Like people jump to that that comparison, but there's nobody quite like Hitler. I mean, Putin has his issues, and I said earlier he's a megalomaniac, but he's, you know, and he has lots of parallels, but it's not exactly the same. And the the, the world is a different place. Right. So we have to make sure that we assess it appropriately. Um, but I think that that's where we're at. We're really in that 1930s window where, you know, 1930s was the time in which, you know, the, the post-Great Depression, um, lots of instability, lots of populism. Mm -hmm. Shirts sound really mm -hmm. familiar. Yeah. Inflation, trade protectionism. That You know, the parallels between the 1930s and the last basically post-COVID period, um, you know, sure seem awfully similar. Right. Um, and so the question becomes, are we on the cusp of, World War Three, and uh, you know that's not hyperbole. Right. World War Three in this case would maybe we're already started it. Maybe Ukraine is the beginning of that, and in Gaza and Israel is an extension of that. Mm -hmm. And then if China were to attack Taiwan, then it becomes truly a global conflict. Um, because most people, when we look back in history, World War Two, you know, we think, oh, it starts with Europe invading Czechoslovakia and Poland, and in, in, in Japan attacking at Pearl Harbor, um, and th that. 
there, yes, that is true. Um, but if you go actually go to when World War II, the, what we really think about the whole broad conflict is starting, it was actually the Sino-Japanese War in the, the mid-1930s, mm. the early 1930s, um, when Japan invaded Manchuria and went to war against China. That really is the first where two, uh, two sides, of the, the allies and the, the, um, what ended up being the Axis, actually fought for the mm. first time. It was in the Sino-Japanese War. And so it starts much earlier. And in the moment, you know, in, in the 1930s, no one probably thought, okay, we're on the cusp of another world war. They, right. they had thought they had fought World War One, and it's the war to end all wars, and we'll never do this again. Um, so they weren't ready for it. And so I'm, what I kind of think about is, is are we kind of sleepwalking into it? Are we kind of already in the midst of it? Mm-hmm. And would we even know? Right. Um, and I don't want to overstate it. Like, we, very much it could be the answer is no, that these are all, uh, you know, individual cases. Mm-hmm. So like Gaza and Israel, there's not a lot of, apparent, you know, relation related elements to it that to that in Ukraine or right. what China would do in, in, in Taiwan. But it yeah. could also be right. that there are patterns to see. And that's that's both what's so fun and interesting to study international relations, what I what I study and what I teach. It's also what's so frustrating is I don't <laughs> have the answer. Right. Yeah, yeah. A complicated situation and really really great to look at how that history is paralleling and all of that. Okay. So for our last question of this segment, how would you recommend people stay informed about the conflict? Um, well, I mean, I always encourage uh, students to to have some sort of preferred news source. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, I know the, the, your generation, um, I'm getting old enough where I have to say that I'm not, I used to be able to say our generation. <laughs> um, but uh, your generation, I know like TikTok is, is a big one and you get a lot of information from there. You know, I would say that that's fine. You know, by all means, get information wherever you can get it from, but be... Uh, be, you know, cautious, be aware of where your information is coming from, because so much of what's on TikTok is either misleading, it's made up maybe straight up disinformation. Um, so like, that's fine to get your information from social media, you know, but just make sure you, you verify. Right. So corroborate, make sure you find something that actually don't fall for like, you know, living in uh, an echo chamber. I mean, mm-hmm. and I fall for this too. Sometimes I'll, I'll share a story on, on Twitter or, or Facebook or something. And, and I, you know, haven't really thought it through. Um, and, and corroborated, it turns out it wasn't mm. completely the story that it was telling. It was a bit of a, a misleading factor. And so I'm just contributing to disinformation. And, and I consider myself to be an expert. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't hold people to a different standard than myself, but right. I just be cautious. So then the other thing is when you're corroborating that, that information, you know, have some, there, there are better news sources than others. Right. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to tell anyone, like, what news source to choose. You know, it's up to you. And just understand that every single one usually has some sort of an agenda, some sort of perspective. So, again, be cognition of that. And it's best to have multiple. Right. Don't, don't rely on just one. Um, and the other thing is look for research. Look for analysis. So um, the when I assign research papers in my courses, I tell students, I'm like, you can – you can go to like New York Times or BBC or The Guardian or any of these newspapers. You can use those to kind of get a, a feeling of what's happening in, mm-hmm. in terms of current events. But those should not be your primary sources. And right. the reason why is because that's not analysis. Those are just journalists providing, you know, secondary information and mm-hmm. account of what's happening. And yeah. that, that's important, but they're not really getting to the, like, why does this matter? And they're also not experts on those issues. Like mm-hmm. journalists are experts on conveying information. They're not experts on an issue. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's not, that's not being critical. They have a job to do. Um, and so then if you, if you want to really, really get into it, go to a, a think tank, go to something like Brookings Institute or, um, you know, Cato Institute, there are a whole range of them, uh, Rand Corporation, and they produce research and analysis that members of Congress use. 
Um, there's also the Congressional Research Service. It's, it's a publicly funded, publicly accessible, um, basically reports produced by this group. And, and they're usually slow to develop because they, they take time and they, right. they're methodical. But they're some of the best analysis. Mm -hmm. and, and again, they're for the American people. Yeah. They're also for members of Congress. They inform their decisions. So, you know, if, if that's what our government is using to make a lot of its, you know, inform a lot of its policy, shouldn't that be also the place where some of us are getting to that right. information? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, a, it's burdensome. It's going to take time corroborating, looking at multiple sources. All this takes time. I think that you have to remember, you know, and I'm, I'm grandstanding a little bit on this, but the, I, I talk about this almost ad nauseum in my, my classes, <laughs> is... Um, if you are finding yourself watching or, or observing news and you're entertained by it, that's infotainment. That's not yeah. news. Yeah. Um, and, like, that's fine. You know, there's a place for that. But mm -hmm. understand that that should not be your sole source of information. I think that that's where too many people that they have – that's all they will dedicate time to. Right. And so they simply just don't have a reliable provider of information. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to be susceptible to disinformation. They're going to be susceptible to um, inaccuracies. Right. And that's something we have to work a lot harder to combat. Yeah, good point, good point. Yeah. We're going to take an ad break, but we'll see you in two minutes. Good morning and welcome back to It's All History to Me. We are at our last segment of the hour, so that means our Q&A trivia question time. Okay, so our first trivia question, how many countries are democratic? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to ask you and reply to your question with another question, which is define democracy in that particular case. In what, what, what measure are you using? Are you using Freedom House? Are you using Polity Index? Are you using... So, I mean, th this is democratization, so, like, the, yeah. it, th these vary. Good point, good um, point. Our question, our, like, response <laughs> was from the Pew Research Center. I can look what they found, they said hmm. democracy was. Let me see. Uh, if it's Pew, it's probably, I, I'm, I would guess they probably were using Freedom House. Um, and so then, you know, how many, how many very, or how many, uh, I'm sorry to keep it. You know, I know, I know this <laughs> no, is kind of no. ruining the trivia. No, you're good. <laughs> well, welcome to academia. Exactly, um, exactly. But um, how many uh, types of democracy are there? Is it, are they just doing democracy Ooh. authoritarianism? Are there because there there are, there are consolidated democracies. There's weak democracies. There's hybrid regimes and hybrid democracies. There's illiberal democracies. Yeah. Let's see. Okay. So the measure <laughs> the trivia questions on you now. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good point. Okay. So the source that we're using, um, it's measuring out of the 167 countries with populations of at least 500,000. See, that's another one is there's yeah. 193 members of the United Nations. So yeah. if it's 167, that's interesting that's that they qualified that. Um, let's see, uh, 167, it's more than 50%. So I'll go, I'll guess 105. Ooh. Um, the answer we found was 96 out of yeah, right 167 um, were democracies, and additionally, 46, 46 countries exhibited, el exhibited elements of both democracy and autocracy. Okay. Yeah. Ties in well to your research and all of the details that go into what makes a democracy a democracy. Yeah, so. tr trivia is hard when you, you know a topic well enough to know that there's nuance, and it's not as simple as, like, democracy, not democracy. Right. Like, it, it, you can't. I, I, in my head, I can't do that because there's 
there's so many types. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, the qualifiers. Okay, so for our second trivia question, over the past two years, approximately how many reports have covered the war in Ukraine? And this was um, a source found for the uh, Reporters Without Borders. How many of... So how many media reports? Yeah. Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> I have no basis for making this judgment, <laughs> but um, wow guess... Um, It's probably more than a million. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with five million. I'm just going to random, random guess. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So then their detail works more into talking about, like, the number of journalists as well that they, like, support. Okay. And the number of, like, media outlets. So they're saying that, quote, more than 1,500 journalists and oh. 150 different media outlets throughout the course of the conflict I was thinking about sponsored. each individual story that oh, they were writing. that's a good And point. then that probably, if you multiply 1,500 by... You know, each one writes yeah. 30 stories. Right. Yeah, yeah. So so that that seems just about in the ballpark, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely interesting that we're in this period of the media digital age. But it gets our attention when when we're, we're – it's a, it's a type of war that we haven't seen since um, – I mean, we, we've seen smaller elements of it. So, like, I mean, mm-hmm. like right now, for example, in the, no one's really paying a ton of attention to it, but – uh, Azerbaijan's in the preparation stages of inv- fully invading Armenia. Oh, wow. So there's about to be another one, like country versus country. We call it interstate conflict. Mm-hmm. We, those just don't happen much anymore. And yeah. so it gets our attention when a big country like Russia invades a smaller country. Like right. that's why we're paying so much attention to it because right. it just doesn't happen that much anymore. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And it reminds me too of like how the World War II like newsreels that they started in like the movie theaters, things like that, that people would go and see. Mm-hmm. And now we're in like the next stages of that where it's the small clips or the brief articles that caught, catch people's attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So for the second to last question of the hour, why is it important that we study political science and history? <laughs> um, I mean, this is, I've dedicated my life to it. So, I, you know, I, obviously I'm biased, but um, I, you know, I think that even if it's not your favorite thing and like political science often gets, uh, you know, people are like, are you, what do you, what do you study politics? Like, I hate politics. Like, you know, and, and, and do, and people always ask me, like, if I study political, or I, when I chose political science in my majors, like, are you going to become a politician? And I'm like, no, there's no, no chance in the world. Cause I'm, it's like, it's like watching sports. I'd, I'd much rather watch football than participate. Cause I'm getting my butt kicked. It's the same in, in, in politics. I would make a terrible politician because, um, look at how I replied to your trivia question. It, it's new, it's nuanced. And, right, and right. Like, I'm not, I'm not made for the like little 10 second, cl- you know, clip yeah. of, of, you know, where I can give a short answer and, and give people what they want. Cause that's what people want from pol- politics. Right. Um, so, you know, why, why study it? Um, you know, one is I think it's more than, than, than politics and, and the, the, the nonsense that that can often become. And it's more about understanding and appreciating the, the world we, we live in and kind of our place in it and the various ways we can um, influence what's happening around us. And like too many times we, we just get overwhelmed with it and we say, ah, we're going to check out and, and this isn't my, this isn't my priority. This isn't, and, and they think that these things aren't going to impact us. Like, you, we, you know, we spent time talking about Ukraine. We could have talked about Israel, Palestine. Mm-hmm. And people look at those and like, those don't impact me. There, there's wars, there are wars on the other side of the world, but that's just not true. Right. There's so many ways they impact you. Um, whether it's, you know, our government deciding whether to support uh, a democracy in Ukraine, whether it's standing up to a bully like Vladimir Putin, you know, I mean, those are moral value laden things that it might, might speak to what American foreign policy is or isn't. Right. Um, but then there's also things like economic consequences and supply chain disruptions and, 
you know, I mean, it just goes on and on. And yeah. so, you know, I think it helps us understand where we fit in all of this. And then, um, you know, history fits into that too, because like I said, you can't understand where you fit into things today and the world tomorrow without understanding some context too. Um, so I think history has its um, really important place in, in that part of that formula as well. Right, yeah, absolutely. Okay, and for our final question, what advice do you have for current and future students of political science and history? Um, <laughs> good luck, no. Um, <laughs> it, it, I mean, no, it's it, the, it is a, I'm, I'm not going to say it's the trickiest time. It never is. Um, everyone thinks that they're living through the most <laughs> tenuous time in history, and that's never the case. Right. Um, but I will say that the challenge that this generation, and, and honestly, any future generation from here on out is going to have to grapple with is the kind of glut of information. Mm. There's just so much. Right. Um, it is overwhelming to keep up. And, and I think that's why a lot of people give up. Uh, yeah. I think, you know, trying to keep up because it's sort of like you asked me earlier, like, what news sources should you follow? Like, mm -hmm. there's so many. Right. And, and, and there's so much disinformation. There's so many opinions and, and uninformed opinions and, and some are better than others. And, and how do you navigate that? It is really hard. Uh, yeah. And it's it's sometimes very frustrating. Right. Um, and so I think as students of political science, uh, history or just somebody who appreciates it or wants to appreciate it, you don't even have to be an actual student. Um that's the world you all live in now. You, you know, in our pocket, on our phones, we have more power, more computing power, more processing power, more information at our fingertips than every single person in the world had in 1950. Right, and I, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know that for a fact, but I, I imagine that's not hyperbole. I bet mm -hmm. that's pretty accurate. Um, and, and, like, the world was a scary and, and hard place in 1950, but just add in all of this noise, all of this complexity – and, and I think that it makes it harder to make sense of the patterns and, and to, to look through the noise. Right. And so I think it's even more important to study these things now than, than maybe any time really ever. And I, I think that's only going to get even more important as things like AI mm. flood us with even more. Right. Because um, this is this problem's not going away. So, you know, I think just get comfortable with not always having the definitive answer. Yeah. Um, that political science, I always, I always say as a field of study, I, there's nothing not a single thing I'm comfortable or could tell you based on data analysis, based on theories that is 100% true. Mm. There's always an exception. Interesting. Um, and so we're not a hard science. We, 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 we aren't like physics where, you know, gravity, if I drop something, it's going to fall to the ground every single time. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work like that with people. People, right. groups of people, countries are complicated. They're, we don't fully understand them. We don't even fully understand the human brain in our decision-making, <laughs> let alone extrapolating them out to groups of people. And so... Right. Um, you know, we, we have, we still have a lot of work to do. Um, and that's the place for all of you. There's still plenty of things that we, we need to know and we, we don't know. Um, and, and also how to process and navigate all of this too. I think is a, there's a place for all of us to, to find a, find our place in that too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So to end our hour, we'd like to thank you, Dr. Clara, for coming on this morning. We greatly appreciate it. Um, and as always, thank you to the History Department and our faculty advisor, Dr. Schultz. Thank you to the Political Sci Science Department as well. Several of their professors have come on and have been great guests. And as well, and thank you to the College of Liberal Arts. Thank you to our researcher, Colby, who helps us each week prepare questions. Thank you, for Weagle, thank you to Weagle for letting us use their airtime. And thank you, listener, because without you, we wouldn't be able to do this. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to It's All History to Me, the show dedicated to exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. 
Be sure to tune in next Thursday at 8 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time. <laughs>